Fidel Castro. We have found concrete evidence of at least eight plots involving CIA to assassinate Fidel Castro from 1960 to 1965. Although some of the plots did not advance beyond the stage of planning and preparation, one plot involving the use of underworld figures reportedly twice progressed to the point of sending poison pills to Cuba and dispatching teams to commit the deed. Another plot involved furnishing weapons and other assassination devices to a Cuban dissident. The proposed assassination devices ran the gamut from high-powered rifles to poison pills, poison pens, deadly bacterial powders, and other materials which strain the imagination. Karras, third man, and uh, that was um, um, the attempt to kill Fidel Castro at the very top. Uh, and that's uh, fitting uh, for today's uh, program. We are going to talk about the CIA a lot. We're going to talk about Julian Assange, but um, about a new book by Stephen Kenzer called uh, Poisoner in Chief. Stephen Kenzer uh, is a former um, war correspondent, uh, bureau chief, and all over the world for the New York Times. Uh, he's a professor at, at uh, Brown University. Uh, he's a lecturer, and uh, he's the author of some tremendously great books, uh, really. Uh, and it's all about um, U.S. foreign policy and uh, CIA uh, dirty tricks. And this book is his latest, and it is really chilling. But it's, it's such a – I'm halfway through it. Uh, and it's like, and I'm looking at it on the internet, you know, I'm, I'm reading it because I have a PDF, because the book didn't arrive yet. It's called Poisoner in Chief. Uh, we'll talk about that with him and uh, much more. I met, I met uh, Kenzer way back in Nicaragua uh, in 1986 or 87 uh, when he was there writing for the Times. Uh, I was there doing a lot of work. Uh, for uh, in support of the Sandinistas and and I used to do my comedy there uh, in front of the U.S. Embassy, which I called Bates Motel. Here, here, here's a little clip. I don't agree with Reagan. I don't think anybody here agrees with Reagan on anything. I do agree with his wife Nancy on one thing on drugs. I'm against cocaine. Uh, it's bad for you. And plus, I don't support the Contras directly. So why should I do it indirectly? All right. So uh, that was Nicaragua. Uh, back in the uh, mid 80s. Uh, by the way, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly and um, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we are uh, on that website. We are on iTunes. Uh, we are on YouTube. Uh, we are all over the place. Uh, so uh, you can uh, find us. Just Google or go to Assange Countdown to Freedom or go to Live on the Fly on YouTube. Um, and um, Kelly Lane, who's the engineer and uh, right now, she is the chief editor, and we got other people working on it, Emily Kunzer, Sarah Kunzer, and Margaret Patner Kunzer. We, we have a nice little team here. Uh, so um, we're going to get right into this. this. I'm really looking forward uh, to doing uh, Stephen Kenzer, who I've not seen in, in many years. It's like, you know, we just had the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. I was going to use him for that, but we fortunately got uh, Alejandro Pendanya, and uh, 
so this worked out perfectly. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the CIA and all of the mayhem they have uh, perpetrated over the last uh, 60, 70 years. All right, we're going to play uh, a little, a little uh, different music today. Uh, we're going to play uh, Jelly Roll Morton. Here's Jelly Roll Morton and, and the Hesitation Blues. And then Steve will give us the background on Jelly Roll Morton. We'll be right back. If I was whiskey, you wasn't tough. I'd dive to the bottom and I'd never come up. Oh, how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? If I had a woman, she was tall, she made me think about my parasol, oh, how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? No lady by the name of Jane. I hit a doctor right off her cane. Oh, how long do I have to wait? Can I get it now? Do I have to hesitate? Mama, mama, look at sis. She's out on the levee doing the was Hesitation Blues by the great uh, Jelly Roll Morton, who um, our special guest today knows all about. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, and we are now joined, as promised, by um, the award-winning journalist, author, professor, uh, gentleman I met many years ago, Stephen Kinzer. Welcome uh, to Live on the Fly, Stephen. Great to see you here. It's been a long time. It's been like uh, 31 years. The last time I saw you was going into, I think, the uh, 10 year anniversary of the uh, Sandinista Revolution. Well, you're dating yourself, but I guess there's uh, no escape. Right. You know, I was thinking that back then you gave me a copy of your book uh, in 86 or 87, A Bitter Fruit, which I want to talk about later on. Um, but um, I, I want to talk about uh, a few things first, uh, journalistically uh, here, uh, Art. I, I read some of your um, uh, tweets uh, yesterday, and uh, this one person that uh, caught my attention was somebody that you met, I guess, when you were in Turkey, and that's, uh, is it uh, Osam Zavala? Osman Kabala. It's Kabala. Yeah, he can you just, you know, give him a shout out and, and, and tell us what happened to this gentleman? Uh, not only can I do that, I'm so thrilled you're giving me the chance. So Osman Kavala was something like the leading civil society activist in Turkey. He was born into a rich family and he inherited the family businesses. And he could easily have just been a business tycoon all his life, but he didn't want to do that. The first time I met him was when I found out that um, a hotel project on a beach in Turkey had been canceled because 
the lights from the hotel would shine down on a beach where turtles came to lay their eggs. So the owner decided, I'm not building the hotel. And I thought this was so strange that he would cancel a construction project to save turtles. I wanted to find out who this guy was. Over the years, he opened a series of cultural centers in Southeast Turkey aimed at providing education, particularly video cameras and cultural background for Kurds. He was not only a great believer in Kurdish-Turkish relations, but a promoter of friendship with Ar Armenia, between Armenia and Turkey. He was always working to push Turkey towards uh, modern democracy. And he's just the sweetest guy I think I've, I've ever met. Meanwhile, he sent some sandwiches down to some demonstrators during a protest, and suddenly he became the target for the president of Turkey. And at the express command of the Turkish president, this poor guy has been thrown in prison and he's in his third year in jail there. So he's one of my dear friends and it's, a, it's an odd feeling to wake up every day and be able to pick the food you want and where you want to go and where you want to, what you want to do and think of him in this terrible situation. He's of course just a representative of many people in jail in Turkey and, and in other places, but when you actually know someone well who is going through this every day. I tell you, I, I think about him every day. And I can't uh, uh, get away from the fact that his story is a real uh, uh, example of something that's very big happening in the world, which is the crackdown on free thought and the uh, attack of government leaders on those who promote democracy and open society. What, what can people do to uh you know, to help this, uh, this gentleman out? Is there a movement? Is there some kind of uh, organization? Uh, there is. So there's something called Free Osman Kavala, which is a uh, hashtag on Twitter. Anybody that wants to follow his case can do it there. Uh, Human Rights Watch in Turkey uh, is doing a very good job following his case. Um, actually, at some point, uh, there was hope that we could nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize, which we thought might... Uh, raise his chances of being uh, released. And that, now it seems like that's not gonna happen. But uh, the important thing for me is to keep his name and his case uh, in, in the public eye. And I'm, I'm grateful that you give me a chance to do that. Thank you very much uh, to, to, to uh, you know, inform us uh, about this uh, poor gentleman. I, I, I can identify uh, with the, uh, the feeling that you get, uh, you know, being able go out. Yeah, I, you know, we spoke about Julian Assange, who became a very good friend of mine. I visited him three times. He helped uh, this show. He used to book guests on this show. And, um, you know, I had him on the show three times. He gave me all the ideas, got his mother on the show. Um, you got, uh, you know, lawyers on the show that uh, represented him. And he picked the music. Like, you're picking the music without even telling me, Jelly Roll Morton. <laughs> So uh, it's it's just bizarre that he's in Spandau where he is. Um, Spandau's like uh, a luxury hotel compared to Balmoris. What what are your thoughts about uh, about Assange and the treatment he is getting these days? The way Assange has been treated over these last few years is absolute torture. It's what we call cruel and unusual punishment, and this is so unjust. Meanwhile, there's no chance that Julian Assange can get a fair trial in the United States. The entire jury pool, that is the American people, is completely polluted by denunciations of Assange 
by every political leader uh, who has weight in this country. Um, it's really bizarre, but tells us a lot about where we are in this country, that the person who reveals the lies winds up in prison, and the people who told the lies that resulted in the deaths of countless people are not only free, but are clamoring for the scalp of the guy who revealed them as liars. So what, what, let me ask you why, um, and, and, I, and I really uh, appreciate the fact that you, you're one of the few journalists. I mean, I still consider you a journalist on top of being an author. I mean, you know, your life, many years as a journalist and you've won awards. Uh, why ha hasn't the mainstream media, because I think they're next uh, if they don't get uh, vigorously behind uh, Assange's case. Why aren't, why aren't they circling the wagons? It's remarkable, you're, you're right, that there's no solidarity from journalists uh, for Julian Assange, but actually we live and breathe the kind of material that he provides. Um, I think the press in America has become, with very few exceptions, part of the Democratic Republican think tank establishment uh, in Washington. It's amazing to me how faithfully almost all of the major newspapers in the United States echo the ideas that are already outmoded about American power, American need to dominate the world, the terrible threats that we face from all the countries and we're a poor little innocent victim in the world. This narrative has been so fully absorbed in the press uh, that I think Assange uh, falls outside it. Because the press uh, is so wedded to the Washington paradigm, it also shares Washington's view of Assange. And the power elite in Washington, the Republican Democratic establishment, has definitely branded him as a person who is dangerous and who must be punished in order to prevent other truth tellers from coming forward. Uh, he should be a hero of the American press. Some people don't like some things that he did or some things that he said or some ways that he behaved, and for all I know, they might be right, but that's not relevant. The fact is, this person revealed some very important secrets that were being kept from the American people. Those were things that we should know. And he was a truth teller. He's being punished for it. And that makes him a kind of a light figure for what's happening in the world and in America today. You know, it really stepped the, the pressure on him. And by the way, I was, I was one of those that was surveilled when I went to see him the last time, last two times. I was actually, you know, because there's this UC Global that was surveilling not only him, uh, but his, uh, his lawyers and his, his, uh, his fiance and uh, just about anybody that walked into that, uh, into that embassy. Um, and, um, you know, this guy has uh, faced a lot of pressure, but I think the turning point where they really stepped up um, the, uh, the intensified, uh, you know, trying to get him was when he revealed all of the secrets or these programs uh, by the CIA of Vault uh, 7. And I bring that up because you have written, it's almost like a four-part, I, I look at your books and, and there's a lot of CIA in them. You've done a lot of exposure of the CIA, whether it be Bitter Fruit, uh, Overthrow, uh, All the Shah's Men, and the most recent one, uh, Poisoner and Cheap. 
uh, and you've dug up a lot of new information. Did you ever get a lot of uh, pressure when you were working on these books and, 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 and uh, eliciting information from sources? I haven't been under pressure, and I think part of that is because a number of the episodes I've written about are now historical. So it's very easy for people in power, including people at the CIA, to say, oh, well, that was then. So we don't have any investment in uh, defending what happened back then. We're all different now. So I think uh, as, a, as a way of showing how they have matured and changed, uh, they are happy to allow and even approve of uh, some revelations of things that they did generations ago. And, and finally, uh, before we move on, uh, Assange, if he is brought to this country, uh, if he is extradited and he is tried, and of course he will, will be convicted, uh, what would the repercussions, uh, what would be the re repercussions in terms of the First Amendment and the free press in this country? For me, it would be very chilling, and I believe that's the goal. That's the reason they're doing this. It's to make sure that people like you and me notice what happened to him and think twice before we do what we like to do. Right. We're talking with Stephen Kinzer, the award-winning journalist, uh, war correspondent, and bestseller, best-selling author. Uh, and uh, before I move on to some of your books, I, I, I want to ask you about uh, Jelly Roll Morton uh, for a minute, because you wrote something about Jelly Roll Morton. And uh, it was a fascinating article I read this morning. Uh, and you also had a, a radio show in Turkey where you, it was like a blue show. You're the first person to do an all blue show. So what is that your favorite genre of music? And, and uh, how did you get into uh, Jelly Roll Morton? I was always a blues fan ever since I've been in high school. And I've got a whole shelf of books about the blues and a lot of blues records. Uh, when I got to Turkey, I discovered there was this super hip radio station. Um, I turned it on one night soon after I'd gotten to Turkey. I was in my car and they were playing a tune by Mez Mezro. And I thought, what? In Turkey they know about Mez Mezro? So I figured out that this station was very avant-garde. They were uh, politically daring, but also musically very open. They had jazz programs, they had a reggae program, they had various other kinds of music. But as I chatted with the guy who runs the station, it's called Achik Radio open radio, uh, I realized that they had very little understanding of the blues, although they knew maybe Eric Clapton, but not real blues, and there had never been a show on Turkish radio of American blues music. And so we agreed this would be a great show, and I, I became what was called, I, I called myself Blues Baba, which means blues daddy. <laughs> and I... Uh, I used to translate some of the blues lines into Turkish, which would send my engineers on the other side of the window into fits of laughter at my kind of broken Turkish. Um, and uh, I had a whole other identity there. Uh, I've always been interested in the roots of American music. Jelly Roll Morton to me is one of the great titans of American music. Um, and I was very flattered when the something called, I think it's the New York Times Book of Essential Knowledge, uh, called That's me it. and asked me if I would write the entry on Jelly Roll Morton. I had written a story for the New York Times about him. Uh, so one nice thing about journalism is it's a, a way for you to uh, work out some of your own private interests. Um, you can follow things that you find interesting. And I think a good journalist 
is somebody who's interested in things that other people will also find interesting. I don't like to just do the same reporting uh, that everyone else is doing. I'll tell you, I was in Turkey for four years as the New York Times bureau chief, and I'm very proud to say that in those four years, I never once set foot in the Turkish parliament chamber. Nobody in America cares about what the foreign minister told the ambassador yesterday in Turkey. What they want to know is what's it like there? What does it smell like? What do people eat? What do they do? And I tried to delve deeply into Turkish life. And one of the advantages of having this radio show was that it put me in a whole different milieu. It exposed me to a lot of musicians and different kinds of people who also informed my understanding of Turkey as a country. So um, that was a that was a great moment. I, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, my mom came to visit me in Turkey. She was very adventurous and she wanted to be let off in a distant part of town. The driver was very upset, but she insisted and she wanted to go off by herself. Uh, later in the day, we got a phone call and uh, it, it was from some business. And she said, the woman said, I think we have your mother here. And so uh, I said, yeah, we had, I picked her up and she said, well, I told them you probably know my son. He's the New York Times bureau chief in Turkey. And they said, never heard of him. What's the New York Times? And she tried to explain. And one of them said, wait a minute. Isn't he the blues baba on the radio? Well, for many of them, that was my big job. And New York Times correspondent was just something subsidiary. Well, you know, I, I can relate to that. People, you know, I've been, been a political satirist and impressionist for 40 years. And when my name comes up, it's always connected as the back channel to Julian Assange or Roger Stone. People, isn't he the guy that was the back channel? <laughs> so that's that's going to be on my headstone, the back channel to Roger Stone. Of course, there was no back channel. And you've been critical of the entire uh, Russiagate investigation. Um, uh, another um, uh, tweet that I saw uh, recently by you was uh, on someone that I'm a big uh, fan of, and that's the late uh, Ida B. Wells. Um, so you say she's one of your heroes, Ida B. She was, because yeah, so she was an investigative journalist, right? Absolutely. She, she made herself into an investigative journalist. So Ida B. Wells was a black woman at the turn of the century, a hundred years, more than a hundred years ago. And she got on trains by herself going through the South. And her job was to write about lynching. Where are people being lynched and why and who's doing it? So it was an amazingly dangerous job. And she's the person who brought lynching onto the public stage and forced Americans to understand that it was happening and was a decisive factor in passage of anti-lynching laws. She risked her life and she had a, a great line that I take as one of my golden rules. She said, the people must be informed before they can act. And there is no way to inform people better than through the press. So I like to think that informing people is a way of giving them the tools to act. And that's the way I see journalism. And she did. Yeah, she uh, was under a lot of pressure herself, and she uh, lost jobs, and she had to move around. Uh, but then again, you know, she was born a slave. She was uh, the Emancipation Proclamation freed her. I think she was from uh, from either Mississippi or Tennessee. Uh, Mississippi. And, I've been to visit her home in uh, Holly Springs, Mississippi. So I think that's uh, someone people should look uh, if you don't know about Ida B. Wells, who just uh, received a posthumous uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, this year, which was. Uh, 
well-deserved, uh, even though it's 140 years later. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick uh, musical break. We're going to come back and talk about your, uh, your latest book and some other books. Uh, and this, of course, is Jelly Roll Morton again. And uh, this is The Crave. Okay, so that was the Crave by Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, that when we take you out, Steve, if there's a particular tune by Jelly Roll Morton that you want us to play, we'll put it in there. All right. If anything I'll, comes I'll to, to mind, all right. Maybe uh, "Sweet Music" by Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, so um, your latest book. I've seen you. I've seen about 15, 20 interviews on the Poisoner in Chief. Uh, which is, I, you know, I, got, I have a PDF on it. And I must tell you, researching this show, you've cost me a lot of money because I, I, I started buying books uh, on Amazon, books that I didn't have. And that would be The Brothers, which looks fast. I don't have that book. I have Bitter Fruit. I, have the, I ordered The Brothers and uh, I ordered The, the Truth uh on uh, teddy roosevelt and uh, what was it? and um, overthrow the true flag so yeah. the truth the truth flag yes that's it yeah that looks like a fascinating book and that's the, at the very very beginning of u.s imperialism uh so uh people have this opinion of teddy roosevelt he, he is a statue that's controversial in front of the museum of natural history where my friend is the curator uh, emeritus there uh, and uh, I think he wants it taken down, Ian Tattersall. Uh, what, what, looking back at Roosevelt in that period of time, uh, what is your assessment of his contribution as uh, president, vice president? Uh, the theme of my book, The True Flag, is that American imperialism didn't begin during the Cold War, but actually back at the turn of the century and with the wars in the Philippines and, and Cuba and elsewhere. Um, Roosevelt, was one of the great founders and great believers in American imperialism. He was a, an intense racist who believed that, uh, as he put it, for example, uh, I wouldn't say the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but I would say nine out of 10 are, and I wouldn't inquire too carefully after the 10. He had the same idea about African-Americans, about Filipinos. He really considered them subhuman. And this is an underlying motivation 
for American imperialism. That there are many people in the world who just don't know how to rule themselves. They're primitive, they're backwards. They don't have governments like we have. They don't have economies like we have. And so we have to fix them. And they can't do it themselves because as a result of their racial primitivism, they're unable to govern themselves. So this means that by taking over their countries, the United States is actually giving them a gift. And although they're too childish to realize it and will foolishly protest against their liberators, we should understand that this is the duty that we've been given by providence. He has provided us with this wonderful country and the formula for creating a perfect society how churlish it would be for us not to share this with the rest of the world, especially with countries that are so backwards, they don't even realize that they need our help. Wow. So, so that's, that's the turn of the century, it goes all the way up, uh, how it began. And, uh, and then this other book uh, that I, that I uh, ordered, it's All the Shah's Men, all right, which I think is a prequel to uh, bitter, bitter fruit, which is the, which is the fifty-four coup. This is the fifty-three coup. Can you go into that a little bit? All the Shahsmen. Yeah. So I've written two books uh, that, as you say, in a way, complement each other about the first two times the CIA overthrew a foreign government, uh, and the very first time we did that was in Iran in nineteen fifty-three. So in my book, All the Shahsmen. I trace the motivations for the United States. I tell what was happening in Iran at the time. And the situation was quite recognizable to anybody that follows what America does in the world. The, the simple situation was that Iran, after the Second World War, had emerged as an incipient democracy. And because it was a democracy, the government had to respond to the great national demand, which was, we want to take back control of our oil. As you know, Iran is sitting on an ocean of oil, but at that time, the entire oil industry and even all the oil under the ground of Iran was owned by one British company. And all, all the revenues from Iranian oil went to Britain while Iranians were living in some of the worst conditions of anybody in the world. So it was natural that if there was a democracy in Iran, that would be the first priority. We wanna take back control of our resource. But when you are challenging the power of a global corporation and promoting the idea that countries that produce resources should be able to use them themselves and set their own prices for selling them, you are touching something very fundamental in the global economy. If the countries that produce resources get to control all those resources and the countries that consume do not control the resources, then the entire world balance of power shifts. So, the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, became our enemy, even though he was really the only real Democrat that ever became the leader of Iran. So in 1953, with just three weeks of work in, the, in, the, uh, in that summer, uh, the CIA overthrew Mossadegh. And they didn't just overthrow one leader, they destroyed democracy in Iran. And everything that has happened there is all a result that came from our coup. If we had not intervened in Iran and overthrown that government in 1953, we might have had a thriving democracy in the heart of the Muslim Middle East all these 
70 years. And I can hardly wrap my mind around how different the Middle East and the world would be if we had done that. Well, so I'm getting that book. These are all available, by the way, folks. Uh, you can get them on Amazon and other uh, uh, platforms. Uh, but uh, these are the ones that I, I'm, I have and am going to get. That's uh, Bitter Fruit, uh, Overthrow, uh, The Brothers, All the Shah's Men, uh, the, the True Flag, and The Poisoner in Chief. And there are other books that you read, but those are the ones that I'm getting, okay, right now, because I'm, a, I'm, I'm like a freak on history. I love like uh, 19th century America uh, and the fight for abolition, and I love all of the stuff that you're writing about here. And so I guess the overview on all of these coups and U.S. imperialism would be Overthrow. Yeah, Overthrow is my book that cites uh, or tells the stories of the 14 times the United States has overthrown a foreign government. I tell each one of these stories. Um, and they are all part of my effort to understand the roots of the upheaval in the world today. You know, it, in, primitive, in, in uh, early times, like in the days of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, before evolution was understood, uh, they had a theory of how life was created. It was called spontaneous generation, that there would be like a pile of mud and there would be some sun and there would be some rain and the next thing you know, a lizard would pop out. Uh, that's the way Americans look at world crises. We think they don't come from anywhere. They, they just generate auto, uh, kind of by themselves, but actually they're caused by things. In many cases, they're caused by American intervention. So. This has been a great uh, focus of my interest. Um, I've been told by uh, book publishers that I shouldn't write a memoir because uh, people don't buy memoirs of journalists unless they're journalists themselves. But I have a title for my memoir. I'm not gonna write it, but I have a title and it's, it's about this theme. So my title is a line that comes from a movie called Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. Oh yes, yeah, so I've seen that many times. It's a beautiful old movie. It's a screwball comedy. Cary Grant goes to visit his elderly aunts and is horrified to discover that they run a rooming house and they poison the guests. So at one point in the movie, one of the aunts says, oh, the gentleman died because he drank wine that had poison in it. And Cary Grant says, but how did the poison get in the wine? That's going to be the title of my memoir that I'm never going to write. Or maybe it's the light motif of my whole uh, in journalistic investigations. The, the wine of world peace has definitely been poisoned. How did the poison get in the wine? I'm trying to walk the cat back, as they say at the CIA, and see what happened before and before that and before that. So we don't fall into this fantasy that world crises are just created by savages in other parts of the world and we have nothing to do with them. Yes, <laughs> the Cary Grant movie I've seen many times, by the way. It's a good title. Aunt Martha, Teddy's got to go to Happy Dale now at once. He's in the cellar. Get him out of here right away. Yes, that was Alexander Knox who played, um, played uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, dressed up as Teddy Roosevelt. All right, so uh, I think Tony Curtis did that impression of Cary Grant better than I do. Um, and uh, finally, uh, the other book uh, that kind of bridges uh, all of these uh, books that take place uh, post the second half of the um, uh, 20th century would be the brothers, because they're the architects of these um, coups. You want to go into that a little bit about the brothers, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles? So 
1953, when Eisenhower was elected president, he named uh, the senior partner of the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, John Foster Dulles, as his secretary of state. He then named Dulles's younger brother, Alan Dulles, as head of the CIA. So this, the period of the 1950s, was the only time in American history when the overt and covert sides of American foreign policy were run by siblings, by brothers. So there was a seamless connection between the CIA and the State Department. And in fact, while I was researching the Dulles brothers, I found a nice line that uh, during the 50s, the CIA was pretty unknown. People didn't understand what it was or what it did. And a reporter came up to Alan Dulles at a cocktail party and said, so what exactly is the CIA? And he said, think of us as the State Department for unfriendly countries. So what I do in my Dulles Brothers book is to try to trace the roots of the Dulles Brothers fanaticism that led America into the intense period of the Cold War. And then I focus on six world leaders that they set out to destroy, the six monsters. So I talk about how they went after Castro and Lumumba, Sukarno, uh, Mossadegh, uh, Arbenz in Guatemala. I give the whole story of how the Dulles brothers really are at the root of post-war American foreign policy. They had tremendous effects. And uh, I'm trying to rescue them from history in, in a bad way and try to portray them as they were so we understand how processes that they set in motion created the world we live in right now. I just give you one example. In 1954, after the French were defeated in Vietnam and decided, much to their horror, they had to withdraw. There was no way anybody could defeat Ho Chi Minh. And they shrugged their shoulders and said, well, with great reluctance, we quit. We can't win. There was a conference held at Geneva to decide what was going to happen with Indochina. The American delegate was our Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Uh, after the first few days, it became clear to Dulles that all the other groups, including the French and the British, were willing to turn over part of Vietnam to Ho Chi Minh. He didn't want that. He walked out. It's the only time in American history that a Secretary of State has walked out of a major international conference in the middle. As he flew home, Dulles decided he wasn't going to accept this idea that Ho Chi Minh was the inevitable victor. In fact, he was going to stop that. He was going to prevent Ho Chi Minh from winning that war. And he set in motion a project which ultimately resulted in the Vietnam War, as we call it. So if that one guy, John Foster Dulles, had not made that one decision on that way home from Geneva, if he had decided, like the British had and the French, it's not winnable. Let's leave it and go on to somewhere else. 40,000, 50,000 Americans who were killed there would not have been killed. More than a million Vietnamese would not have been killed. It's an example of how decisions made by a couple of people in a closed room can have truly earth shattering uh, effects. And that's what I'm trying to portray in that book, The Brothers. Well, uh, I can't wait to read that book. I've been wanting to get it for a long time. Uh, and now that I'm, I'm kind of like in a lockdown situation, I got plenty of time to read. I, I just read a book, a couple of books, one on, um, on, on Mussolini, uh, and uh, he, he comes into it, uh, Alan Dulles, who was trying to rescue Mussolini. 
before he was shot by the partisans. He was somewhere in Switzerland uh, setting up shop with the OSS with the big Bill Donovan and Tom Braden. Remember, Tom Braden was part of that outfit early on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in fact, their name comes up in this other book I just read. Uh, again, it's called The uh, Culture uh, Cold Wars by uh, uh, Francis Stoner Saunders. Have you read that book? It's, uh, oh, yeah, I have it right on the desk behind me here. Oh, you really? And, and so when reading your book on, on uh, Poisoner and Chief, it's just like a, a good prequel to that one. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's all about the Congress for Cultural Freedom and how that was set up. But, you know, what you talk about in, in, in this book and what you talk about in the other books really don't come up uh, in this book here. It's, all, it's, it's another part of the CIA's involvement in, in um, music even, music and literature and in writing um, uh, by, by Dulles. And Tom Braden was like one of the chief guys at that particular time. So uh, that doesn't come up. It kind of whitewashes what they did the CIA at that particular time. So there are two, two focuses by the, uh, the CIA. Uh, one is the, the, the literature, the music, and all of that, and the other is the uh, dirty uh, operations. And uh, I tell you, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be teaching a seminar at Brown where I teach this fall on the early history of the CIA. And as I've been putting it together, I realize there's so much material it should be like a four-year course. Just to fit it into one semester is impossible. So I have to pick and choose. There, there's so much rich material in that early history that helps us understand the world today. All right. So, that, yes, I, I can't. This is at the, the Watkins Institute at Brown University. And you'll be lecturing there. Well, I might be in Providence uh, at that point, and I can come and see you um, uh, deliver that speech or that lecture. Uh, so that takes us, you have that part, uh, the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom. Now you got the, the dirty stuff. And uh, the, the worst, of course, is UK Ultra. And, and it's, it's the focus of your book, uh, uh, Poisoner in Chief. Can you just set up what UK Ultra stands for? Uh, so in the early 1950s, the CIA decided to launch a major project. Actually, it was probably the most important project the CIA was carrying out during this period, although, of course, nobody knew it because it was deeply secret. The aim of the project, MKUltra, was to find the key to mind control. How do you make a prisoner do what you want? How do you program a person to go out and commit crimes? How do you seize control of a person? How can you destroy a human mind and a human body and a human spirit? Uh, MK Ultra was run by a person who is the center of my book, Sidney Gottlieb. This person lived in total anonymity. Nobody knew that he ever existed. But as I have now come to realize, he was probably the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century. This guy had what amounted to a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. And I don't know there are very many other people that had that. He was traveling through Europe, through Asia, requisitioning prisoners that he could experiment to death. So the entire history of MKUltra, which was based on research that was carried out by Nazi doctors in concentration camps, is the focus of this book. And I've tried to 
essentially write a biography of a guy who was completely invisible. It was quite a challenge. And there's also an emotionally challenging aspect to writing this book. So when you're writing a biography, you're really living with the person that you're writing about. And you're following him or her all the way through life and what they do and what they say and what they become. And realizing the horrors that this person was responsible for and that were part of MK Ultra was something quite devastating for me. I tell you, I've written 10 books and I've come up with a lot of interesting episodes, many things that surprised me. They may have shocked some of my readers, but this is the first time I've been shocked. I still can't believe that there was such a thing as MK Ultra and such a person as Sidney Gottlieb. You know, this Gottlieb guy, first of all, he lives this ascetic life. He's uh, in a cabin in Virginia. He's got no running water, uh, no electricity. And yet you see him, the photos that are out there, and there are very few, you see him in suits and ties and he's traveling around the world. He's got this great position. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's, I couldn't find any video on him, but I, I, I do have a clip here of uh, Colby uh, during the, uh, the church committee hearings back in 75, referring to a dark character here. Here it is. Subject today concerns CIA's involvement in the development of bacteriological warfare materials with the Army's biological laboratory at Fort Detrick. CIA's retention of, a num of an amount of shellfish toxin and CIA's use and investigation of various chemicals and drugs. The relationship between the CIA and the Army Biological Laboratory at Fort Detrick as an activity requiring further investigation surfaced in late April of this year. It resulted from information provided by a CIA officer not directly associated with the project in response to my repeated directives that all past activities which might now be considered questionable be brought to the attention of agency management. Information provided by him and by two other officers aware of the project indicated that the project at Fort Detrick involved the development of bacteriological warfare agents, some lethal, and associated delivery systems suitable for clandestine use. A search was made for any records or other information available on the project. This search produced information about the basic agreement between the Army and the CIA relating to the project and some limited records covering its activities from its beginning in 1952 to its termination in 1970. In the course of the investigation, CIA's laboratory storage facilities were searched, and about 11 grams, a little less than half an ounce, of shellfish toxin and 8 milligrams of cobra venom were discovered in a little-used, vaulted storeroom in an agency building. All right, so that clip there that you just uh, saw, uh, Steve, was, was, was he referring to Gottlieb there, Colby? Yes, the program director that he referred to was, was Gottlieb. Um, you know, when uh, Gottlieb left the CIA, he left along with Richard Helms, the uh, CIA director who had been his patron over more than 20 years at the CIA. As they walked out the door of the CIA, they decided they should destroy all the records of MKUltra, and they did. Gottlieb himself went out to the CIA archive in Warrington, Virginia and demanded that seven crates of documents be destroyed. And I found the archivist's record. He even writes, uh, these seven crates were destroyed over my stated objection, because destruction of federal property is a felony. But 
what would have been revealed in those records was a much more serious felony going over many years. So uh, Gottlieb carried out excruciating experiments, many of them fatal. We don't know how many people died, um, yet the MKUltra program is still, even after all the work that I and others have done, largely unknown. You know, at the end of my book, uh, one of my favorite sentences in that book is, everything in this book is true, but not everything that's true is in this book. I'm painfully aware that uh, I've only uncovered a small portion of what MKUltra was and what Sidney Gottlieb did, but even that small portion is truly chilling. Well, you know, uh, some of the things that he did, uh, he's credited with uh, innovating the concept of black sites uh, around the world. Now, what, how did that, how did he do that? I, I mean, I, I know that he uh, got um, uh, hookers or prostitutes to ensnare unsuspecting um, uh, victims of his uh, experiments. And Well, uh, that was a separate project that he called, that was a wonderful uh, uh, project in San Francisco called Operation Midnight Climax, where uh, prostitutes were paid to bring men into a CIA bordello and then were given drinks laced with drugs so that their reactions could be observed. So Gottlieb was running essentially a national security whorehouse in California, uh, giving people drugs as a way to protect America against communism. So you can see how crazy that was. As for the black sites, while I was researching this book, I went to a beautiful chateau outside of Frankfurt in Germany, which I believe may have been the very first CIA secret prison or a black site. It's a, a lovely building. Looks like you could have a wine and cheese and it could be a B&B &B in there. Um, I actually I knocked on the door and a young German businessman had recently bought the building. He was uh, renovating it and he took me through and he took me into the basement where he has storage rooms. And he said, these are the cells where the CIA officers carried out their lethal experiments, which were only continuations of experiments that the Nazi doctors had been conducting only a few years earlier, just down the road in the concentration camps. Um, and then the guy also told me, when I bought this house, I talked with some of the neighbors and the older neighbors, the people who had lived here their whole lives, told me that they all knew that this was the CIA torture house. They didn't know it then, but it became clear over the years. And they said that the bodies of people that Gottlieb experimented to death are buried around here in places that are now covered over by apartment blocks and, and shopping malls. So I was actually in those rooms in which Gottlieb conducted what probably were the most extreme and intense experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any officer or agency of the US government. It's amazing that this uh, guy who used to milk goats you know, what's it, what's with it with these guys who, it's Himmler with chickens, it's Gottlieb with goats. I, and, and I want, want to talk about the, the, the Nazi influence. Was he cognizant of the fact that there were uh, Nazi uh, doctors from concentration camps that were working with him? Was he aware of that? Not only was he aware of it, he worked closely with them and knew exactly who they were, was eager to gather their information. Who else would be able to tell you what is the right mix of sarin gas that you need to kill a baby. 
The only way you can find that out is by killing a bunch of babies. We didn't do that, but the Nazis did. So we wanted to know. We wanted to get all the research that uh, the Nazi doctors had put together. And here's the really strange aspect of the CIA cooperating with Nazi doctors. It's Sidney Gottlieb. Gottlieb's parents were Jews who emigrated from Central Europe around the turn of the century. If they had not done that, if they had stayed in Europe and Sydney had been born there instead of in New York, quite possibly they would have been rounded up in one of those Nazi sweeps sent to a concentration camp. And who knows if young Sydney or his parents might have become the victims of one of these grotesque concentration camp experiments. But in the event, he didn't seem to have any hesitation working with those same Nazi doctors who had carried out those killings and so-called experiments in concentration camps. The, uh, those, uh, I was just reading uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich uh, uh, again, like three times in the last year, because I'm looking for parallels to what's going on in this country, uh, the early days up to 33, 34. Uh, I mean, there's no real comparison to Nazi Germany. I try to stay away from those analogies. But uh, there is a chapter on, on these doctors there, these scientists. Uh, one guy in particular, August Hurt, uh, who uh, experimented uh, in the same way you were just talking about, uh, who like uh, committed suicide in 45 before he faced the gallows. Uh, his body was discovered by the Mossad like 20 years later. Um, you know something? He made a mistake. He made a mistake committing suicide. And Mengele made a mistake fleeing. If they had just stayed there, they would have been hired by the CIA. <laughs> I, wait, but the, well, tell us about Operation uh, Paperclip and how these um, scientists and, uh, and doctors were um, uh, co-opted by uh, the CIA or by the, by the Department of Defense. And near the end of the Second World War, the chief of our intelligence service, the uh, organization of uh, the OSS, uh, General Donovan, uh, came to Franklin Roosevelt and told him, there are a lot of Nazi spies who have been working in Eastern Europe and Russia, Soviet Union, and we want to hire them. Is that okay? We want to bring them here. We want to make them part of our intelligence operation. Roosevelt refused. He said he wouldn't, would not hire any Nazis, any, anyone that had worked for the Nazi army. But very soon after he refused, that was the time when Roosevelt died. Truman came into office and he thought it was okay. So he approved the hiring of Reinhard Galen, who was one of the senior Nazi spies and the entire Galen organization. Then uh, the American military men who were working on rocket science decided that if the Americans were willing to hire former Nazi spies, why not hire former Nazi rocket engineers? And that's how we brought Werner von Braun and so many of the other rocket scientists who designed the V-2 rockets that rained down on London and other cities in Europe during the Second World War. They came to the United States. And the third phase was the the guys who were working on biological warfare and ultimately biological means of mind control, they thought, well, if we're hiring Nazi spies and we're hiring Nazi scientists, why not, hi uh, why not hire the biologists, the biowarfare experts, and these concentration camp doctors? And they went ahead and did that. 
This was all achieved through something called Operation Paperclip. And what that was, was a project by which uh, more than a thousand ex-Nazis were, as they called it, bleached. So they, uh, the Operation Paperclip operatives rewrote their biographies to take out some unpleasant aspects like he was a member of the SS, uh, he supervised slave labor, and they add things like what a great family man he was and how he was good at sports. And over a thousand Nazis were brought to the United States under Operation Paperclip. I'll just give you one example of, uh, how, of a person who came to work for the US government after being one of the senior Nazis. So this guy was Kurt Bloma. He was the chief of biowarfare research for the Nazis. After the war, he was sent to go on trial at Nuremberg. He was a defendant in the Nuremberg doctor's trial at which a number of doctors were sentenced to death. But the, the Americans got wind of the fact that this guy had tremendous knowledge about biowarfare. So we quietly got to the judges at Nuremberg and essentially told them, we don't want to hang this guy. We want to hire him. And Kurt Bloma came to work with Gottlieb on MK Ultra, the former head of biowarfare for the Third Reich. That's just one example of the kind of wonderful folks we brought over uh, to the CIA uh, as a result of Operation Paperclip. Wow, that, that's just astounding. Uh, and this association with Gottlieb, uh, I, I, the guy must, is he a sociopath? Is, is he mentally ill? I mean, what, what, what was in that soul of his other than the fact that he grew up in the Bronx, he had, a bad, uh, he had bad legs, he had to get a bunch of operations, he was um, uh, ridiculed by his classmates. Uh, what was it in that psyche of his that allowed him to participate in, in, in this kind of de demonic uh, activity? I have pondered that question for many, many hours. So Sidney Gottlieb was a compassionate humanist. He wrote poetry, he studied Buddhism, he meditated, he ate only vegetarian food that he grew himself. Uh, he was a great community activist and he got a stutter. He, in the end of his life, he went back to graduate school to get a degree in speech therapy so he could help kids that stuttered like he did. Uh, he was known in his uh, local community as a wonderful fellow. But yet, when he would drive out of his house and head towards work, something came over him and he would spend his days administering these horrific projects. Now, later in life, Gottlieb was called to uh, testify in private before a couple of Senate investigating committees. And at one point, in, in the little of the testimony that's been released, he says, I want the members of this committee to know that this work was very difficult for me. It was very painful. I, I, it was hard for me to do, but it was so necessary. And there, I think, is a great lesson that we can draw from uh, CIA in 1950s and MKUltra for today. Why was the US government willing to carry out such a horrifically brutal program over years? It was because we believed we were facing a terrible existential threat. And the argument would have been, we are, of course, a, a nation of laws. We always obey ethical and moral standards. But once in a great while, there comes a moment of such great crisis 
that we temporarily have to put this aside. In fact, John Foster Dulles talked about the 1950s and said that it had only a thousand years ago when the Muslims were pushed out of Spain. That was the last time the world had a conflict like this. It only comes once in a thousand years. Well, if you believe that, then you can justify doing extreme things you wouldn't do otherwise. But it seems we never get out of this emergency situation. Now we're also told the same thing. Oh, we're facing terrible enemies around the world. Terrorism is everywhere. Therefore, temporarily, we have to put aside some of our civil rights and some of our niceties uh, only because we're under such terrible threat for this limited period. But the limited period never ends. And I think that's a great lesson to take away from the 1950s and the Gottlieb MK Ultra project. Don't be carried away with this idea that because there's some threat that you've been told about, we have to abandon all our ideals. Well, you know that, uh, well said there. Uh, I guess the, uh, you could describe uh, MK Ultra as uh, one of um, kidnapping, uh, torture and murder and assassinations, targeted assassinations, which Gottlieb, uh, you know, was was the um, the brains behind one on Castro, one on Lumumba. Can you just uh, give us a little uh, encapsulation of those two events? When Gottlieb was Gottlieb's identity was discovered in the seventies, and he was called back to Washington for this private testimony. It was all on this subject. So Gottlieb was the chief chemist of the CIA. Therefore, when the president of the United States, Eisenhower decided that a foreign leader had to be assassinated, it was naturally Gottlieb who got the job of making the poisons. And that was his metier. I think he probably knew more about poisons than anybody in America, maybe anybody in the world. And uh, he concocted amazing poisons. He had this shellfish toxin um, that could kill uh, 5,000 people with a single gram. And he got it by extracting minute amounts of toxin from thousands of Alaskan butter clams. That was the extent to which he went. So it was Gottlieb who made all those poisons that you read about for Castro, the poison pills, the poison fountain pen, the poison wetsuit. Anytime you needed poisons, that was Gottlieb. And he also was the man who actually carried the poison that he made to the Congo which was supposed to be used for the assassination of Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba. So Gottlieb, when his identity was discovered, was asked by the Congress investigating committee um, about the assassinations and his role in assassinations. But the, that's what first uh, brought him to my attention. But the more I understood about Gottlieb, the more I realized that the assassination plots were not the important part about his work. In, in those cases, he was just a pharmacist. He made up a compound for someone. If he hadn't done it, someone else would have done it. But MK Ultra was different. That was entirely the product of Gottlieb's mind. If another person had run it, it might well have been much less brutal and much less horrific. So I began to realize that the real story about Gottlieb is not that he made poisons to kill foreign leaders but it was MK Ultra, and that's what led me into writing Poisoner in Chief. And that title comes from exactly what he was. He was America's Poisoner in Chief. Poisoner in Chief, it's MK Ultra, Poisoner in Chief by Stephen Kinzer. I, I highly recommend 
getting that book, folks, any way you can. Go to a bookstore, get it online. Uh, just a, a few more questions about Gottlieb, and uh, it's the, um, the LSD experiment, experiments. Uh, can, you, uh, can you give us a little background on the LSD experiments? So Gottlieb was fascinated by LSD. He was something like the first LSD maven. He, he believed that LSD might be, as one of his colleagues put it, the key that could unlock the universe. In other words, the drug that could be the key to mind control. So he wanted to learn everything he could about LSD. In 1953, Sidney Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. And he did, they did. They brought it to the United States from the one manufacturer in Switzerland. Uh, and Gottlieb used it for a variety of experiments. Some of them were horrifically brutal. For example, I discovered one carried out on seven African-American inmates at a federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. They were locked into a cell and given triple doses of LSD every day for 77 days in an effort to find out if this would destroy a human mind. And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, but not all of his experiments were brutal and coercive. Gottlieb also wanted to know, how does an ordinary person respond to LSD, knowing what it is in a clinical setting? Unable to have clinics of his own, Gottlieb set up a couple of bogus medical foundations. And those foundations contacted hospitals and clinics and universities around the country and said, very clearly, we have this new psychoactive drug, LSD, we wanna test it. So we will send you this drug. You will then advertise for volunteers. Uh, we'll, you can pay them with money we will give you. And you just write reports for us about how they react when they take LSD. So almost overnight, a new market sprung up for LSD research. It was very profitable for many hospitals. And who were among the very first volunteers to come in and try Sidney Gottlieb's LSD? One of the very first was Ken Kesey went on to write that counterculture classic, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He loved LSD so much that he not only told all his friends to volunteer, but he got a job at the hospital. And as I learned in my research, that was the job that gave him the raw material for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But that's not why he took the job. He said he took the job because he wanted to steal the LSD out of the medicine cabinets, which he did, bringing it home and turning on all his friends. Allen Ginsberg, the radical poet, was another one of these very first LSD experimenters. Robert Hunter, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead, took some of Gottlieb's LSD, loved it, turned on the whole Grateful Dead. So in a sense, Gottlieb is the godfather of the LSD counterculture. He, it's through his experiments that LSD leaked out into the mass population. And of course, the irony of all this is that the drug Sidney Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the tool to control human minds actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. Wow. Jack Nicholson, all you have to do now, Chief, is raise your hand and we can watch the World Series. It's Bobby Richardson. He's going around second. It's one of my favorite films, Ken Kesey. Um, and, you know, I think maybe I was an unwitting um, uh, 
victim of Gottlieb's work because when I was 14 at Laguna Beach, California, I, I dropped uh, some orange sunshine and it was the one and only time I tried LSD in 1968. And, uh, you know, I never fully recovered from it. You know, it was really nasty stuff. I Man, I did a number on my head, you know, back then. Uh, so the name, by the way, uh, Gottlieb, after this is all said and done, he retires. And then you say he goes on kind of like this remedial uh, mission lifestyle. Can you just uh, touch upon that a little bit? Once uh, he retired from the CIA, he was still a young man, he's in his early 50s. Um, he and his wife did something which really fit in with their kind of proto-hippie outlook on the world. They sold all their belongings. They went out to San Francisco and got on a freighter and they decided to spend the rest of their lives traveling around the world and helping suffering people. They went to uh, Southeast Asia. They ultimately ended up working at a leper hospital in India. And it was there that Gottlieb got the very unwelcome cable from Washington saying, essentially, uh, I got bad news for you. Some people here have realized that you exist and you have to come back and testify. So Gottlieb then had another 15 years of life and he came back, moved back to Virginia, had his uh, proto hippie lifestyle. Um, he worked uh, in a hospice. He taught reading in jails. He worked with children. But yet from the people that I found who knew him during that period, they all said, it was obvious that he was carrying some kind of a, of a heavy burden. He was troubled. Seymour Hirsch, the journalist, was one of the guys who went out to visit Gottlieb during this period. And I had lunch with Hirsch to ask him what it was like. And, and Hirsch said to me, he was a destroyed man. He was racked by guilt. If he had been Catholic, he would have moved to a monastery. Um, his rabbi during that period was a woman who tried to talk to him and draw him out, but she said that there was a wall there. He, he just wouldn't confront it. He wouldn't talk about it. And here's another interesting detail about Gottlieb. So he died in 1999. It was a very significant moment because it looked like finally, after years and years of depositions and uh, judges' decisions, he might have been brought into court to face a trial for one of the episodes in the MK Ultra history. And right before that trial was supposed to open, he died. I talked to the lawyer who spent 15 years on that case, and he told me he's convinced that Gottlieb committed suicide, that he just didn't want to be the instrument by which all of this would be revealed. Uh, and after he died, no mention was made of his cause of death or where he was buried, um, his widow called the four children together and made them promise that for the rest of their life, they would never speak in public, never speak to anyone about their father. And uh, I discovered this because naturally in writing my book, I figure out, well, he has four kids, three still alive, and I want to find them. They would be great sources. And I started writing to the older son who had quite a distinguished career. I Facebooked him. I sent emails to him. I sent uh, certified letters. I never heard anything back. And I was on the point of just flying out to Wisconsin where he lives and doorstopping, just, just jumping on him. Um, but I found another person who was close to the family who told me, don't bother. And that's how I learned about this family rule. They are never allowed to talk about their father. And 
I'd be curious to know how those three now grown children react to this book. I, you know, I, were, were they aware when he was uh, engaged in all this uh, immoral activity? Were, was his wife, you think she was aware of the extent of the kind of damage he was doing to the planet? I think she was aware that he was doing terrible, that he was doing very harsh things and they must have been necessary. I don't know about the details, but in my research, I did come up with one fascinating story that sheds some light on the family dynamic. So I found a woman who back in the 1950s, for one summer when she was 16, was the girlfriend of Sidney Gottlieb's son, older son. And so during that summer, she spent a lot of time at the Gottlieb home. So this was a fantastic find for me. And she told me this amazing story. She said, one time I was at home with Peter, that's the older son, and the parents had gone shopping. So it was just the two of us at home. So Peter said to me, come over here, I wanna show you something. So he took me into Gottlieb's office, his study. And then he said, turn around. So I turned around, I didn't, he did something, I didn't see it. And then he said, okay, you can turn back. I turned back and the bookcase on the wall was opening. And behind the bookcase were all kinds of weapons, firearms. And I said to Peter, why do you have these guns in your house? And he told me, my father kills people. And I said to him, is he in the mafia? He said, no, he's in the CIA. Wow. She later speculated that they might have been afraid that some victim would come after him, or maybe somebody working for one of these foreign leaders he tried to kill would come after him. That never happened. But sure enough, he must have felt some fear during that period. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had a hidden bookcase with guns behind it. Wow, it's a, that is a very, very bizarre. Uh, you know, I know that, uh, that Seymour Hersh is a big fan, and, and he every review I read on all of these books that I ordered on Amazon, uh, there was always, there was a lot of reviews, but Seymour Hersh was there at some point. So I know that uh, uh, he's a big fan of yours. And uh, uh, just one last question, and, and I can't think of the name of the guy that uh, supposedly committed suicide uh, back in the early 60s. Frank Clancy, was that his name? Frank, Frank Olson. Olson, Frank Olson. Just quickly, give us that story there. You, you, you posit that it may have been a murder, not suicide. That was exactly it was exactly the case that was about to come to trial and when Gottlieb died. So the Frank Olson story is one of the fascinating parts of MK Ultra, and I devote a whole chapter in my book to this story. So there were only a very small number of chemists working on MK Ultra, and it was a super secret project. It was the most secret project uh, that the US government was involved in during the 1950s. If any of that information about what we were doing had leaked out into the public, it would have been devastating, not only for the CIA, but for the United States. So it was naturally very disturbing when one of these chemists, Frank Olson, seemed to have an attack of conscience. During the summer of 1953, Olson was traveling in Europe on MK Ultra business. That meant he was overseeing experiments in which people were tortured to death. And Olson was an expert on aerosols. He made aerosol poisons. Um, and he apparently watched people 
being tortured, possibly tortured to death with uh, sprays that he had created. He, something broke in him. He told the guy who uh, was supervising those experiments that he didn't want to do this anymore. And when he came home, he told the other guys at MKUltra, I want to quit. And not only do I want to quit MKUltra, I want to quit the CIA. Well, this was unthinkable because what was in this guy's head was too dangerous. I, I can understand their feeling that a person like this could not be allowed simply to return to civilian life. And later I found out that he had even asked one of his friends, do you know a good journalist? Obviously a very bad sign for the CIA. So uh, the, uh, the group around Sidney Gottlieb invited Olson to a retreat at a cabin in Maryland, and Gottlieb had him fed LSD in the hope that Olson would then say something about maybe what he was going to do or what his plans were. Um, but uh, nothing serious came out of it. The CIA remained concerned. They brought him for psychiatric treatment to New York City. They were staying in the hotel, uh, what's now the Hotel Pennsylvania, right across the street from Penn Station in New York. And uh, on a shortly after 2 a.m. on a dark night, uh, just before Thanksgiving, Frank Olson went out the window in that 13th floor hotel room. Uh, that was reported in the newspapers as the suicide of an army scientist. He was not an army scientist, he was a CIA scientist. And as for suicide, the more you look into the case, the more odd the story sounds. I spent many hours with the New York police detective who investigated the case. And he said, it just doesn't make sense. They say that he ran across the room and dove through this window. But look, he measured this amount of space. He said, there's hardly any way to get through that. And if you wanted to jump out the window, why not just open it and crawl out instead of doing what he called a Superman move of diving across the room and through the window. The whole thing is very suspicious. And uh, Olson's son, who has needless to say, never let go of this case is firmly convinced that uh, it was a murder, that the CIA felt uh, Letting this guy go was just too dangerous. It's one of the remaining mysteries of MK Ultra. I have the feeling that there's a document somewhere deep in some CIA archive that will reveal what happened, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to live to ever see the declassification of that one. Wow. The name of the book is Poisoner in Chief, written by Stephen Kinzer. You, I, I highly recommend it. I'm, you know, I have, I ordered it, but I, right now I don't have it yet. I, I got because I'm up in the Adirondack, so it's taken a while, a couple of days at least. Uh, but I, I do have a PDF version, which nobody can have. I'm not sharing that. So I, I urge you to get that book uh, along uh, some of your the classic bitter fruit, which you wrote with Steve Schlesinger, I think, in the early '80s. Uh, and then get overthrow, get the brothers, get all the Shah's men, and uh, the, the true flag, and the one I just mentioned, which is uh, Poisoner and Chief. How do people uh, contact you, uh, uh, Steve, uh, if they uh, want to interview you or write the, the movie? I mean, who, who want to buy? This is a great movie. This is definitely going to be made into a film. Um, a famous actor who you've heard of, but I shouldn't say his name on the screen, is interested in, in making this movie. So uh, I, ho I hope it does. Um, I'm on Twitter pretty actively, so anybody can contact me there. Um, and I'm always eager to try to, to tell untold stories. And 
try to help educate Americans on how the poison got in the wine. Well, well um, I really appreciate you taking out uh, this much time. I said 45, I think we did an hour, but it was really fascinating. Uh, it, great work, uh, and uh, I commend you for writing all of these books and uh, for your work right now uh, at, uh, at Brown University and uh, your, your years as a war correspondent. And you know, I could go on forever with you. You're a great storyteller. And um, we're gonna take you out right now with a little more Jelly Roll Morton. All right, Stephen Kinzer, be well, my friend. You too. Thank, Thank you. Connect. Fascinating, Stephen Kinzer, and all of those great stories uh, about this uh, MK Ultra program and all of the other stuff he talked about Ida B. Wells, Julian Assange, uh, Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, really a, a fascinating guest, very knowledgeable and very accomplished. And I, I recommend that you uh, follow him, Stephen Kinzer, S T E P H E N Kinzer, just straight through uh, at uh, Twitter. And I recommend getting those books. Now, if you have any money to spare, I also recommend that you support this program. We are going into, um, it's two months now prior to the resumption of the prosecution, persecution, uh, show trial of Julian Assange in, uh, in London. He's still locked in this uh, horrific uh, medieval dungeon called Belmorish where he is vulnerable uh, to um, COVID. And it just, it, it's such a dilapidated, depressing um, situation that he has been foisted in uh, because the US uh, politicians and government don't like the truth and he told the truth and we are all better for that. So uh, we, we, we wanna continue doing this. Um, we've done 30, this is our 36th show, 36 uh, this year. And, uh, you know, we don't have big expenses. We don't have any salaries, but we do need your support. And if you want to, uh, you want to help us continue doing this, and I think it's important and we'd really like to continue, please go to our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Just straight through AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Uh, I want to thank um, Kelly. Uh, thank you, Kelly, and I want to thank Emily and Sarah and Margie uh, for helping out, and uh, I want to thank you for supporting this program. Uh, we're going to go out here with um, uh, a clip from one of my favorite films of all time. It's Gold Diggers in 1933. It's really like an anti-war film if you take a look at it. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, produced during the Depression, and it's all about uh, those who uh, 
got screwed after they fought in World War One, uh, who came back like they do now when they go to war, they come back, they end up homeless, forgotten, uh, not being paid, uh, you know, just totally stiffed. And that was the big deal uh, back in the early 30s. And read about Coxie's army. And uh, this is um, Joan Blondell and uh, I think uh, Emma Newton, I think. I, I, I don't remember right now, but I know for sure it's Joan Blondell. She's the lead uh, uh, character in this film. And uh, this is um, My Forgotten Man. My Forgotten Man is, uh, of course, those who went, came back, and uh, got uh, left on the side of the road. Uh, we'll see you soon. Uh, we uh, will uh, continue. Please support Assange Countdown to Freedom. Thank you very much. Remember My Forgotten Man? You put a rifle in his hand. You sent him far away. You shouted, hip hooray. But look at him today. Remember my forgotten man. You had him cultivate the land. He walked behind a plow. The sweat fell from his brow. But look at him right now. And once he used to love me. I was happy then. He used to take care of me. Won't you bring him back again? Cause ever since the world began, a woman's got to have a man. Forgetting him, you see, means you're forgetting me. Like my, my forgotten man.